Welcome to Paradox of Civility. This is your host, Ben Shapiro. This is a very special episode, only available on the Patreon page. For those subscribers, I contribute $500 or more a month. And I'm sorry, if you can't afford $500 because you're working five jobs, and you're homeless, and you're starving, and your kids are starving and dying right in front of you because you haven't figured out how to monetize hate, well, that's a you problem. That is a you problem. And also, what? 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 Fuck are you doing, man? I'm, I need to run, record my. This is your, your. This is my studio. I need to record a podcast, bro. Get out of here. Oh no, I'm sorry, but that's just false. That is just false. I'm Ben Shapiro, and I'm hosting this podcast right now, and that's a fact. And facts do not care about your. Wait, hold on a second. Uh, wait, there's a homeless person over there. I'm gonna run out there and shame them really quickly, and then then do a video about them on PragerU. Ow! Fuck, man. <sighs> okay. Um. Wow, he's gone. All right, well, hello everyone. Welcome to Paradox of Civility. I am your host, the rightful host, Roy Koshi. Welcome. For this episode, I revisit uh, The Hate Project, episode 34, which aired originally on August 12, 2013. So, uh, for my longtime listeners, The Hate Project was a radio show that I did back in 2012, 2013, in which I explored hate in which I allowed hate mongers, actual members of hate groups, to call in anonymously so that I could have a real conversation with them about why they grew to hate other groups of people. Um, If you've been listening, it's been a mixed bag, you know. Um, I had some real hatred expressed on this show. But on this episode, uh, this is an episode that I was happy about because it was kind of curving, the show's kind of curving towards a direction that I wanted to go in. Um, I ended the show two episodes after this one, so I don't know what may have been. But anyways, uh, on this episode, I interviewed an African-American sports writer named D.K. Wilson. Well, he was a writer, but um, he did spend a lot of time, he spent a time, he spent a lot of time as a journalist. He wasn't just a sports writer, but um, his work in writing about sports, um, He delved into racism in sports, um, and he delved into the systems of racism that exist within uh, mainstream American sports, and he was often blacklisted. He often lost work over this, and uh, there was even a moment where he got death threats. So um, we talk about this, and um, it was a conversation that went all over the place because DK, basically, not only do we talk about his life in writing and how he got into it, um, he does talk about some interesting stuff there, obviously, about, like, you know, segregation within, like, you know, newspaper environments, supposedly liberal newspaper environments. Um, but he also was a tennis coach for a while. He was a musician. Um, he traveled the world. His dad uh, worked for the Office of Naval Intelligence and uh, apparently did some dirty work. We get into that. Uh, He did some work that uh, DK claims involved paranormal activity, mind control, even UFO stuff. And his dad died under mysterious circumstances, and he ended up having some strange interactions with some folks afterwards. And he had some UFO and paranormal-related incidences that he has experienced. Um, He sounds very sincere. He doesn't sound like an Alex Jones-style crazy person. We talk about that a little bit here. In general, he sounds sincere. He sounds sane. And in fact, like there are certain things that he brings up in this uh, interview that I didn't really agree with at the time. And I'm not sure I agree with today, but he does back up what he's saying. Uh, He talks about Michael Vick uh, being framed for dogfighting, for instance, in this episode. And, um, you know, he does back up what he's saying. You know, again, draw your own conclusions on that one. I'm not sure I agree with his uh, take on it, but, you know, listen and learn Um, or not. 
So, um, you know, DK and I, uh, we talk about also his life at private school and how he experienced virulent racism from fellow classmates at his private school. And a lot of these people would go on to take on prominent, uh, a prominent presence in American society, such as becoming CEOs, uh, becoming legislators. And so we talk about that a little bit, how private school is kind of a breeding ground for that. We also talk about um, something, we talk about um, one aspect of, you know, talking about race in the media. You know, DK talked about his struggles in being involved in platforms that are specifically set up to deal with race. For instance, like a sports website that was specifically set up to deal with racism in sports and the struggles of actually really talking about racism because, you know, yes, our platform is set up to deal with racism, but we don't want to turn anyone off. You don't, don't, don't be too truthful. You know, uh, he kind of talks about that and you can see that I'm not going to go into this right now, but a lot of these uh, websites out there, these sort of like blog hive websites that are meant to address race and culture from a, you know, a hip, uh, today's standpoint or whatever, uh, really tepid for the most part. And, you know, they had their own issues because a lot of the ownership is still white, unfortunately. Um, that's for another episode. And so, um, but he talks about that a little bit. Uh, DK talks about something that I have thought about as a person of color since this interview. And I'm glad that I got to revisit this. He talked about, you know, uh, how, something that hinders the advancement of people of color in this country is that we have grown to love our abuser. He's speaking about this in regards to black people specifically, uh, you know, slavery, uh, this indoctrination of slavery for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, basically for generations, people were taught that they're nothing. And so they learned to find salvation in their slavers. Right. And, uh, he talks about this, but it's this idea that people of color in general, uh, not just black people, but people in color in general, have Stockholm syndrome when it comes to white people. We uh, even, and I'm, I'm just going to say this, like even in the realm of the Yas queen, empowered, badass people who are non at white men, a lot of what they do is just performance that's empty with nothing behind it. And a lot of it is this pining for the acceptance of white society. It's sort of done like in this rebellious uh, flavor has this filter on it, but it's just that it's just a filter. But I don't think people of color in general really want to talk about the Stockholm syndrome, the fact that we've been indoctrinated to think of ourselves as less than. And if we don't talk about that, if we honestly don't want to have that discussion, it's a problem because we won't advance. You know, we will still be performing empowerment. We will still be, um, you know, just shouting. And at the end of the day, like if inside of us, if we're just talking about how liberated we are and we're just badasses and we don't need anyone and we're doing it, uh, if at the end of the day we still seek the approval of mainstream white society, we're not going to get anywhere. Then you were just acting and not really even acting that well. You see it online a whole lot. And that's another thing DK and I talk about. Uh, we talk about how computers were designed to be used for practical uh, actually constructive use, like research, for instance, and they've just been wasted on social media. And that's only gotten worse since, since 2013. So um, it's a long-ranging and interesting conversation, but I just want to hammer that idea of like people of color, if any fellow people of color are listening to this, um, think about the Stockholm Syndrome that you feel 
and it, it's 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 not I'm not making fun. I'm not shaming anyone. I'm not trying to be glib about this. It's like how can you not be? I mean, most of the media is catered towards white people, and so whenever people of color do show up, um, either it's very token. It's like the token friend. Or uh, they're sort of like placed in their own neighborhood, as it were. Like, this is the black version of blah, blah, blah. This is the black show. This is the Asian show. This is the Asian rom-com, you know. Um, And so I just want to bring that up because that part of the interview happens nearing the end of the uh, end of the end of it, basically. And I wish we had gotten more into it. but, you know, it's just something that since I've since I had this interview, I thought about it a lot. And it's just sort of there's nothing wrong with uh, having that because you can't help it having that sort of Stockholm syndrome. But it's just it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be unpacked for us as people of color. You know, I want liberation to be a full liberation. I want, you know, consciousness. I want us to, like, really carve out just just understanding that, you know, you're not. There's no such thing as whiteness, white people. It's all construct. You don't have to appeal to anyone. And we're doing it right now. This culture, this sort of time period is like this false empowerment. It's like, I don't care, man. It's like a, it's like a teenager rebelling against their parent, even though they want that parent's uh, respect and affection and love. I sometimes see this and, you know, again... Obviously, like there's some good that comes out of this sometimes, but um, in a lot of the uh, representation matters, uh, you know, sort of advocacy, that's really just it's online for the most part. And it's just addressing literally representation within white spaces. Um, and it's sort of the idea of like, oh, we have a diverse coalition in this, you know, car commercial, um, this insurance commercial, and it's not really ever not only is it not addressing concrete material real problems that people are going through real real hurdles that people are going through we're not carving out new aesthetics you know we're not carving out new sorts of ways of having a dialogue i'm sure some people are out there so i apologize it's not directed at you keep doing what you're doing but it's just something that I notice right now, the, uh, you know, race swap, uh, you know, diversifying, you know, uh, things that used to be white. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that people should stop doing that. I'm not saying Star Wars, you know, Disney should start kicking the colored folks out. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is just we have lost, we have not sort of like, in general, I don't always feel like, you know, we have given ourselves that gift of we belong here too. It's just sort of like, well, we belong in this white male world. And so we're going to really like, you know, we're going to really resist by being, finding our corner in this white male world under their sort of like rubrics of storytelling and their rules that they make. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm not a social scientist. I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, leading intellectual, more of an amateur intellectual. (laughs) Oh boy. All right. Back to this podcast. So part of this podcast, Paradox of Civility, uh, two things, you know, I try to measure how much worth it was to talk to hate mongers. Um, 
address that already. Like D- talking to DK was really interesting because he wasn't a hate monger. Um, also, the part of the other part of this podcast mission is to address current events, current uh, issues that are occurring in the current era that we're living in right now. Uh, I'm sponsored by the word current, by the way. So that's why I'm using it so much. And um, in this current Trump era, ooh, made another 500 just now. And, um, you know, how what I was talking about during the hate project mirrors what we're seeing today. Um, I do want to address the Proud Boys, uh, the Proud Boys with other hate groups, their rally in Portland. They've been attacking Portland a lot. Portland has been the center of a lot of violence between these uh, right wing hate groups and also uh, like counter protesters who are deemed Antifa. But they're just anti Antifa short for anti anti fascist. And really it's just a groups of people who don't want Nazi Nazi sympathizer, Nazi adjacent people in their town. So they were outnumbered big time and their rally uh, lasted about thirty minutes. Okay. Well, they got a police escort after that thirty minute rally. That's a problem. So I mean, yes, let's celebrate the fact that the citizens of Portland drove these assholes out, right? But still the forces that be up to the highest offices in the land, still support these guys and support their ideology and are implementing their ideology on a day-to-day basis. That's what we have to be worried about. So they get a police escort. There was a bridge that was closed to everybody for this rally, but the Proud Boys and their compadres got a police escort over this bridge in Portland that was closed to everybody else just so they would be make it out of there safely. And one of the uh, guys, one of the worst offenders, this guy named Joey Gibson, he runs Patriot Player, player you know he is a player he's a fucking grifter patriot prayer uh which is a northwest hate group as well um he was trying to give a speech to a group of people a little bit after this rally i think um i don't know what the timeline is you i but i'll post an article about it uh and a woman was just revving her motorcycle to kind of like you know fuck with him to like kind of mess with his speech he could have moved somewhere else and talked but um like moved out of town and talked somewhere but uh, the police attacked this woman, uh, and they cuffed this woman who was revving her motorcycle. It's very clear who the police who the police is on, whose side the police is on in Portland. And they have an African-American woman uh, police chief named Danielle Outlaw, fucking fascist as well. Her police uh, force has continually protected these hate groups. They have uh, flanked these hate groups, made sure that no counter-protesters even looked at them funny, right? And then whenever they wanted to disperse the nonviolent counter-protesters, anti-fascist counter-protesters, they would use a lot of violence. They would shoot weaponry at them, like deadly weaponry. And, you know, this is also a problem with the representation matters. First of all, Stockholm Syndrome, Daniel Outlaw, upholding a white supremacist ideology through the police force. It's like diversity in the police doesn't fucking matter because it's a white supremacist Uh, patriarchal organization so diversity doesn't fucking matter but that's what I was talking about just now Uh, Stockholm Syndrome you know people uh, that's somebody who's knowingly doing it I think but people unknowingly just uphold a white patriarchal supremacist society and system because we don't want to question what we're doing on a day-to-day basis I've been guilty of this too myself included maybe I was doing that too by having this stupid show back in 2012 and 2013. I don't know. Also, I do want to address with the Proud Boys thing. Donald Trump had posted, uh, he had tweeted out, uh, again, considering uh, major consideration is being given to naming Antifa an organization of terror. 
All this in caps, by the way, Antifa and Organization of Terror. And he says, Portland is being watched very closely. Hopefully the mayor will be able to properly do his job. God, what a fucking cunt this man is. I don't know, man. I wish he would just get a stroke and he would just be stuck doing that thing that he was doing when he was making fun of that reporter. He was just stuck doing that for the rest of his life. Really wish that. Okay. Well, uh, also on this on this episode, you, you're about to hear um, Pastor Lindstedt. You heard him on episode 10 and episode 11. He's the unhinged uh, white supremacist pastor, quote unquote. Uh, who is considers himself a uh, Christian identity pastor. Christian identity, of course, is the ideology of a lot of KKK neo-Nazi members as well. Um, and, you know, if you want to go listen to those episodes, I pity you, but he's a very unhinged man and they're very uncomfortable. Anyways, he calls in, um, and I left some clips in here just to sort of for you to hear them. Uh, and here's why I left those clips in. I almost didn't include it. But he basically talks about Real right-wingism. That's what he calls it, real right-wingism. And he basically talks about how, um, you know, um, the agenda is to destroy everybody who is non-white. He says this a few times, and that's why I left these clips in. There's a moment where my mic got cut out because my internet got cut off for a second, and he's just talking. He's talking on his end on talk shoe, and he's talking to my audience, and he's riffing and talking about how much I suck at my job and how much this show's terrible. And um, so basically, he, he just basically is open about this. And um, he uses the word real right-wingism. And I think we're seeing real right-wingism uh, basically come to the surface right now. There's been a respectable lid on it for a while, but we're seeing it rise to the surface. So um, after the interview with D.K. Wilson, I will chime in and let you know when that's happening. Um, I do want to say one more thing uh, before we get into it. The interview with D.K. Wilson, the f- the connection was not so great. Uh, so he was on the phone with me, and I was on my computer. Um, and so the connection is not always stellar. So I apologize for that in advance. Um, I try to recap what he's saying at times. So I just ask that you be patient because it really is an interesting uh, conversation. And uh, enjoy, and I will talk to you in a little bit. Folks, we have a very special guest tonight. Um... His name is D.K. DK Wilson. He's a sports writer. He writes about sports and sports media. Um, and he writes a lot. He's an African-American writer who writes a lot about race and racism in sports and the sports media. Um, we're going to talk a lot about a lot of different things, uh, but um, I want to just jump into it. So um, I'm going to just welcome him to the show. I think this is him. Hello, D.K., are you there? Yeah, hello. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Uh, good, man. Good. Good to hear from you. Thank you for calling in, sir. Yeah, no problem, man. So, DK Wilson, um, did I get your bio in general right? You are a you're primarily a sports writer, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I was. Yes. You were, or you still are? No, I I, I um, retired from the game, if you will. Oh, I, I've been blacklisted. So there's no okay. way I can get a job or anything like that. And so it's just, um, it's, it kind of stinks, you know? Okay. So, so, and, uh, I, 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 I there's some information. I'm, there's a story behind all this and I'm going to, we're going to get into that later on in the interview, but uh, I just want to give our listeners, whether they are listening live or they will be listening to the future podcast, some sort of background. So, um, DK Wilson, um, 
you uh, – where, where are you from, by the way? You don't have to, like, give me details that you don't want to, but uh, where are you from? I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, grew up in Washington, D.C.? Okay. Yeah, I've lived a lot of places in the U.S. Okay. I'm on my own. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Sorry. Okay, sorry about that. My bad. Um, oh, yeah, I um, grew up in D.C., lived a lot of different places in the U.S. with my family or and on my own. Um, I'm now in Austin, Texas. Excellent. Okay. Um, I'm also from Texas. Uh, Austin's a wonderful city. I I love it there. Um, So um, you you are an African-American gentleman, correct? This is true. Okay. Excellent. Um, And I'm just – I'm bringing this up to sort of bring – to bringing some – bring in some context for listeners because – in a lot of your sports writing, you you address um, race in sports and also the media surrounding sports. Um, and um, were were you always a sports writer, or did you start out as a different writer to begin with? Um, no, actually, well, I started writing fiction in college, but okay, uh, I did I did spoken word poetry when I was first year in in Austin, and was actually in South by Southwest for that. Um, cool. but, uh, I wrote sport before that. Even. I, I wrote sports. Um, then I took a job as a managing editor of a black newspaper in Alexandria, Virginia, <laughs> and wrote, uh, politics, um, mainly primarily politics. Um, I, I wrote a lot and I was on Capitol Hill quite often and at city council meetings and all that kind of stuff. You know, so I, I've done politics as well. News politics, okay. that kind of thing. Okay. Um, so, oh, sorry. Um, I just want to pause for one second. Um, I'm just letting everyone in the chat ro- chat know um, we are speaking with DK Wilson, um, a a writer, a former sports writer. Um, I want to uh, lay down some rules, some ground rules for this um, particular interview. So, DK, I'm going to ignore. I don't know if you can see the chat room, but I'm going to ignore it during our interview. But if you want to, if you want to address anything that's written in the chat room, you're more than welcome to bring it up. But I myself won't focus on that. I'll just focus on you. Does that sound good? Oh, fine. Yeah, actually, I'm not looking at it. I'm out on my front porch. <laughs> okay, you're you're better off for it. Trust me. Um, so, people in the chat, you know, I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the show. I hope you enjoy it. Um, if you're going to contribute things, you know, don't be a dick. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't know if that's going to work. Me giving you that advice, but. Um, you know, don't use any threatening language. You know, be nice, and if you're not, I will block you. Okay, sound good? All right. So, um, you're you're in Alexandria, Virginia. So, how old are you when you're writing for this black newspaper? Uh, I was 21. 21. Okay. And um, so you knew that you always wanted to be a writer since you were young, right? Yeah. Uh, previous to that, I'd, I'd written for uh, weekly newspapers in uh, outside of Washington D.C. Uh, writing sports and was the editor of a sports page from one of the papers. And then I went to the Washington Post of all places, um, where I was supposed to write high school sports and local high school and local college sports. And uh, there was a famous sports writer there who had a uh, a guy who graduated from his college, and he wanted him to to come and write sports. And so. Uh, I walked in for my first day, and much to my surprise, was taken over to a copy editing machine, 
and told that I would be a copy editor and I would do minor league baseball and stuff like that instead of what I was hired for. I didn't know what the heck was going on and uh, soon soon found out from some black writers because they had been awaiting my presence eagerly since I was so young. Um, And they told me what what was going on and who I got bumped off for and this and that and the other. And so... uh, I'm sorry, can you repeat that? I'm sorry, I kind of missed that last part. Sorry about that. I said uh, they they told me what was going on and who I got bumped off for and why. Okay. And um, then I made it a point to... Well, what, what happened was is when I when I walked in for my second day, I noticed that all the black writers are sitting in one corner in the cubicle as far away from the editor's office as possible. And everybody else was everywhere else. And um, I, I was astounded. And so I made it a point to try to get away from it unless I was going to do what I was hired to do. I, I made it a point to try to get out of there as soon as I could. <laughs> Okay. And six six months later, I got offered a managing editorship at a newspaper, black newspaper, and I took the job. And and this is the black newspaper in Alexandria, Virginia, correct? Right. So, um, so, uh, um, so you take this job, and um, is this was this sort of the first? I'm assuming that you know you were. This was sort of a racial incident before you got to Alexandria, Virginia. That you're sort of being bumped off like that. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, it was. It, it was hierarchy. I mean, the guy was uh, again. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but he was a service writer, and and uh, the guy who we hired, he still writes at the Washington Post, as a matter of fact. But um, yeah, it, it was. It, if I was white, I don't believe I would have gotten bumped off like that. No, I, and, okay. and it was interesting that the, the managing editor was. Uh, one of the senior columnists, and and he was the managing editor because the normal managing editor had taken a year sabbatical. Okay. So so the guy who hired me was not the guy who bumped me off. Actually, the guy on sabbatical found out what was going on, and he's the one who made the move, not the person who actually hired me. Okay, I see. Interesting. um, Okay. Yeah, it it was really interesting. And, And while I was there, I had uh, another thing that spurred my move is that I had a book idea about uh, writing about a year on the tennis tour because I had played tennis, I played professionally. Um, uh-huh. As, as right, right out of, I left college early to do that. And I started college at 16. So, um, okay. and um, I had talked with a friend whose mother was a high-powered person at a publishing house right. and submit, submitted an idea to her, the idea, and they really loved it. Um, I told a uh, well-known columnist at the Washington Post about the idea, and about six weeks later in the USA Today, the same writer who was the famous writer who got his, his uh, uh, alumnus buddy in the in, into the Washington Post. Um, literally, she took the idea and gave it to him, and there was this one-inch article, one-inch mention in USA Today. It said, so-and-so, the author, uh, the writer guy, his yeah. next book is going to be about a year on the tennis tour. <laughs> Wait, what did it say? I'm, I'm so sorry. It was a little foggy when you said that. What was that quote again? So-and-so, 
the, the writer, his, his next book will be about a year on the tennis tour. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, on, on the professional tennis circuit. And the, the person the person who I told, who told him, uh, huh. a few months later, she ended up at Sports Illustrated, a woman, I, I, I gave that up, writing uh, National College Football. And that's okay. a big step up. She was a, you know, she went from the Washington Post, Post to Sports Illustrated. And, and <laughs> bumped off a black dude who was already writing uh, uh, the National College football scene for Sports Illustrated moved him right out of his position for her. And, Interesting. Uh, yeah, it, it's really it's, it's all kind of incestuous stuff because her father was a senior editor at Sports Illustrated for a decade, so it's pretty okay. you know, a series of incestuous uh, and racial moves. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, um. And where did you go to college again? I'm sorry. Uh, I went to two colleges. I went to UC San Diego and the University of Minnesota. And uh, when was uh, and what was the first college? You went to San Diego, the first college. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, all right. So the, the so you're experiencing kind of for the first time within the sports world in the sports media world. Uh, racism or you're experiencing sort of like being marginalized because of the skin color or like, you know, being, uh, being, you know, um, pushed aside very easily and being treated like you're expendable. Um, so, so was this the first time you felt this way or had you experienced racism before that? Oh, funny. Yeah. I, I went to private schools and was often the only black person in my class or, uh, once one of like three people in the entire school. So okay. uh, I was called nigger quite often. Um, at, at that time when I was young, a person couldn't get the second syllable out of their mouth before I hit them seriously. That that was my automatic reaction. Until so I asked my father one day why he sent me to these schools, why was he sending me to these schools? And he said, I want you to understand the heart of the beast. Oh, really? So he wasn't... So he was—he wasn't even like sending you to just get a better education. It was actually to kind of—it was like this immersion therapy. It almost sounds like. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I mean, um, myself and my sisters—we all went to private schools. Um, he was uh, uh, English major uh-huh. um, and graduated summa cum laude from the university he attended, and was the first black Division One swimmer. So you know, he has a, a history that that. Uh, where he understood what I was going to go through, what I did go through. So, you know, um, and being at that time young, but being a really good athlete, um, the thing that kept me afloat in those schools was my ability to play sports. However, um, still I had, you know, uh, I came from a family had plenty of money, a lot of money. (laughs) And, uh, it wasn't class or anything like that. It was straight racism, you know. I mean, you know, uh, right. I mean, my parents could afford to spend, you know, thirty thousand dollars a year on on three children. You know, each thirty thousand dollars each on three children. Yeah. It was to private school, so we had money, and so when I went to these schools, I thought that because of class, because of that, um, there wouldn't be a problem. And I grew up in an integrated neighborhood, and no one ever said that kind of stuff. We never 
discussed race, black, white kids, you know, but I went to these schools with people, some of whom, you know, are on the national stage right now. Um, some of them are going to be. Uh, some of them are CEOs of companies that people might know and stuff like that, or close to that, at least. And uh, those are the same kids who are calling me nigger, you know, so <laughs> it's kind of funny. So when you say on the national stage, um, um, sorry, I, I apologize if I'm asking you to repeat yourself because the phone that you're on is a little, like, kind of muffled. Um, it's not uh, a criticism. I, I have uh, earbuds in, and so if let me turn up the I have an iPhone, but it's, uh, I don't know, it doesn't act right sometimes, so sorry about that. Right on. Yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Um so, I mean, I, I just wanted to sort of address this idea of some of the people who were calling you nigger when you were a kid are, um, are you know, you said they're on the national stage. They're important people. Um, do you mean that they're celebrities that, you know, your average American would know about, or are they like... Uh, you... Legislators, you know, and stuff like that. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I, I, again, I'm not, I'm not going to name names, so... No, no uh, you don't have to. I'm not asking you to do that. Um, the, the, the most virulent racists that I dealt with in school were actually a couple of kids from Venezuela. Well, not a couple, one of the two kids from Venezuela. These yeah. fathers were, they were oil magnate children, and this one guy was just ridiculous. I mean, he was, I mean, and it's so funny because he was Hispanic. Yeah, uh, but his mom was white, so <laughs> so he didn't right. he didn't he didn't look Hispanic, and he didn't associate himself as being Hispanic, even though he spoke fluent Spanish. He was from Venezuela, but uh, he called me out a lot, and so we got in a huge fight in the rain and the mud, and we have our you know our jackets on and our ties and stuff like that. Oh know? wow! And we're fighting so, in the mud, you know, and so that that was that's how that's the only way he stopped was was through that, that final fight that we had. Um, so, but he, so, he was the worst. Okay, yeah, well that, that's fascinating because I want to I, I wanna come back to this point in one second, but I just want to sort of get some other details to flush everything out. Like, So what did your parents do? Uh, you mentioned that your dad was a first division swimmer. He graduated English, you know, he was a very esteemed student. What, like, what was, what was their profession? Uh, his above board profession was he was uh, the assistant to the assistant of health, education, welfare, but he also worked for the Office of Naval Intelligence. Oh, really? Okay. At, at cool. least, and if, if not CIA and other places, too. He did a lot of uh, real, real dirty stuff. It turns out. So. Oh, really? Well, yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, you know, on on. Uh, 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 I don't know, just just you know, stuff that that deals with uh, paranormal stuff, stuff that deals with what's called mind control, stuff uh, that deals with what's called UFOs and all that kind of stuff. Your dad was involved in some of that. Uh, yeah, he sure was. Yeah. Um, how did he? Um, and you don't have to give me any details that you don't need to. But um, how does he? Like, how did he grapple with it? Did he enjoy doing it, or did he just sort of say like, oh, "This is my job," or do he uh, sort of like? No, he didn't. He never said outright what he did at all. Um, when I asked him what he did when he went before I was born, when he was in the Navy, he said he was a potato peeler. <laughs> he, he was a what? I'm sorry. Potato peeler. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry. Repeat that again. I'm sorry. Potato peeler. He peeled potatoes. Oh, potato peeler. Okay. Oh, okay. 
That's what he said in, he did in the Navy. Um, however, I found out he was at a base in Japan, and uh, he took Zen classes there um, because on our wall was a, uh, a painting on rice paper uh, done in with a calligraphy pen. It's a, it, was a, it was a pen drawing of a cherry blossom branch with one yeah. flower on it. And that's what he had to do, I found out, for his to matriculate from his Zen classes that he took while in the Navy. Okay. So he was doing weird stuff there and not telling me what he did. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, when I was, well, how old? Let's see. What, how old would I have been? Oh, I'm trying to think here. Um, until 11 years old, we went to 11 years old. We went to California. He was sent on sabbatical for a year uh-huh. from the, his government job, and I later found out that they don't send people on sabbatical unless they're in a high stress job. And I know his above board job certainly wasn't high stress at all. <laughs> so, so um, I, you know, it, it kind of made me wonder what he did do. And, and when, when we moved out there, we were set up in a home on the beach. Uh, in Venice, California. Uh, he was a visiting professor at USC, uh, uh-huh. you know, class in government economics. So he got like university pay, government pay. He got this huge per diem amount for our family. And it was, it was crazy. And, and his best friend was sitting down there with him to hang out with him. And he stayed at a posh, like a uh, singles uh, condominium complex in, in uh, Marina Del Rey. And so he was sent to hang out with my dad and chill out to give him a friend to hang out with other than his family. And that's when I realized that he was in, in some kind of job that was so high stress that he couldn't talk about it. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, wow. Okay. So then how did you find out about it? Did you sort of put the num- the pieces together for yourself or? Well, he died rather unexpectedly. Uh, his heart exploded. Uh, uh-huh. He had Mayo, Mayo Clinic equivalent tests taken at uh, Walter Reed Hospital. Um, they said he was in the health of a 30 to 35-year-old man. Uh, he ran seven miles in the morning, seven miles in the afternoon, didn't smoke anymore, hadn't, had quit smoking years before. And he was 42, and he's being interviewed on the Capitol steps, and they asked him how he was felt after this little a two kilometer run. It was a show dog and pony show run for some Senate bill. And yeah. he said he felt fine and he collapsed on the steps of the Capitol and died. Um and so after that, uh finding out how he died and knowing that he had just had these tests and had gotten his bill of health, um, I thought that was rather fishy. And so I started thinking about stuff. And then I came upon a book um, called Out There. I think uh-huh. the name's name is Howard Blum. And actually, the book is about UFOs, of all things. And I read a description of a man who went to the same school as my father did, was a swimmer, and he took the description, took the description of someone that my father talked about at the University of Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Um, I later met that man while I was at University of Minnesota. Um, I was uh, studying for some finals and was taking a break and went up to this 
park area at uh, the university and was walking back to my car. And there's a guy, tall guy, in a long, old coat, uh, white hair, buzz cut. And he's standing, like, kind of in front of my car. <laughs> I'm walking up the hill, and he says yeah. my name. And he says, hi, how you doing? I'm like, uh, okay, who are you? He said, oh, I'm just an old family friend. I just want to make sure you're okay. Uh, I checked it on your mom and your sisters last week, and I thought I'd come out here and see how you were doing. I was like, and I, I, was, I was shaking. I was so scared. And he obviously saw me saying, hey, don't worry. I was looking at your dad, you know, and, you know, just making sure everything's okay. You doing okay, you know, here at university? I was like, yeah, uh, fine, yeah. Got in my car and drove away, just scared to death, man. Told my girlfriend at the time, and uh, we thought about it. And I was reading, I had read that book while I was at the University of Minnesota. And she was the one who said, you know, describe him again. And I did. And she was like, wait a minute. She brought out the book and she said, he's just the guy. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, that's him, you know. And he was a dude who was working for uh, Strategic Air Command and uh-huh. some other, some, doing some other intelligence work on unidentified flying officers. Okay, so did you ever see this guy again after this uh, visit? No, 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 no. I I never saw him, but I have had UFO experiences since I was five years old. You mean uh, like being beamed up to a UFO or? Uh, I you know I don't even know to be honest with you. The the first time we we moved to from, I was born in Nebraska, and my parents, um, grandparents they were farmers. They were what? They were what? I'm sorry. Corn. Farmers. Okay, yeah. And had large tracts of organic corn. So that's where our money came from originally. And uh, so my father was working at the Air Force Base in Nebraska, Austin Air Force Base. And then he got transferred to, but he wasn't in the military at this time. This is after the military. And then we got moved to Maine, a little town in southern Maine. And we flew on a commercial jet, and he flew separately with the Air Force, <laughs> okay. which I later found was very odd. And uh, so your dad did? Your dad? Okay. Yeah. Yes, my dad did. Okay. And you know, it turns out that that place was uh, a real hotbed for UFOs and a hotbed for uh, Barney and Betty Hill. It's like the first modern abduction experiences of interracial couple in New Hampshire. Uh-huh. And uh they the psychiatrist who put them under hypnosis and stuff was uh captain at Pease Air Force Base, which is where we were. <laughs> so Wait, wait, wait. Um, I'm so sorry, that name got that name got lost. Can you repeat that name again? Uh Pease Air Force Base. The captain's name? Oh I didn't say his name. Oh you didn't okay. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. And so um, uh, while I was there, I had my first UFO experience, and I've had them ever since until the last four or five years. I haven't seen anything, fortunately. But, so uh, when you yeah. say, uh, yeah, so like when you say experience, what is, like what do you mean? So you know, you don't know that you're beamed up or not. Like what what is the experience exactly? Uh, seeing them in the sky, other than. 
if I'm not mistaken, that first experience, I've always seen them with other people, which is very fortunate. Uh, one time, saw in Washington, D.C., was going to uh, a couple girls' homes, the home, their home, and their dad worked at the World Bank. And uh-huh. he, he and his wife, they were English. He, they were taking a red-eye flight to England, and their daughters, my friend and I were dating their daughters, so they called us up and said, you know, our parents are leaving, da-da-da, come on up. You know, it was like quarter of two in the morning. We're like, cool. Okay. So me and my buddy, we get some beer. We're walking up this large street in Washington, D.C., and all of a sudden, it's the, the sidewalk looks like it's daylight. Um, I look at my friend. He's looking up in the sky. I turn around. Look at this guy. There's this huge flash of yellow. The next thing I know, we're walking up the street, and we had uh, two 12 packs of beer in our hands, but they weren't in our hands. We turned around. They're like 50 feet behind us on the sidewalk. We got to the girls' homes, and all the lights were out. We knock on the door, ring the doorbell. They're pissed off. It, it, we, we left at quarter of two. Uh, we got there at 4.30. Okay. Uh, you got there when? At 4.30 in the morning. But okay. Not not that morning's newspaper, but the next day's Washington Post uh, had an article about a UFO sighting right where we were because there was these two, uh, two condominium complexes that were really exclusive places right across the street from each other, part of the same complex. And a dozen people reported seeing a UFO exactly where we were standing. And it was in the Washington Post. They didn't believe us until that article came out the next day. And, and, so, the people, and so the people who were, who were with you, would they still verify your version of the story? Uh, the, the, the guy who was with me? Yeah, uh, and the girls. Uh, oh, I don't know where they are. Um, he's in somewhere in California, I believe. I, okay. I'm not in contact with him anymore. So, um, yeah, he would, sure, but. Okay. Okay. So, wow, this this conversation went into a different direction. Okay. Um, what did you? Well, let's just back up a little bit. Um, what did your mom do? Uh, she was a school teacher. She, school uh, teacher. She was, a, she was a housewife, but she was bored, so she taught school. She was an English major as well. So. So was she uh, uh, involved in the public schools or private schools, like you were going to? Uh, private schools and parochial schools. Okay. And was your family religious? Were they? Catholic. Catholic? Okay. So, um, that's a trippy story, man. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I'm just, I'm just full disclosure, DK, like, I mean, I just haven't like been convinced of the US, of the UFO thing yet. Not, not from your story, but like just in general. So I'm trying to digest it. That's a, that's a trippy story that you told though, man. And, uh, yeah, um, it's just, it's, I mean, you know, it's, it, like I said, it's in the it was in the Washington Post, so you know there's not much yeah. denying it, you know. So I mean, not not my not like I was interviewed. Like I said, a dozen people reported seeing a UFO where we were, and the article was in the Washington Post. So and, you know, fort- that was fortunate for us because the girls didn't believe us either. You know, <laughs> they thought we had been partying or something, and we're just right, uh, right. late late coming up there, you know. And so okay, um, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, I've had a, I've had a lot of experiences. I've had experiences with people who refuse to talk about them to this day because they're so scary. You know. Um, so I have a question. Um, are you are you buddies with Alex Jones down there? Because I know he's based in Austin, right? Yeah, I I, I interviewed Alex Jones actually. Um, let's see, is that the JFK assassination researchers conference in in Dallas? Yeah. In two thousand. 
nine. I interviewed Alex. I'm not an Alex Jones follower, but I yeah. interviewed him. And, I mean, uh, like it, it's sort of like I mean, I feel like he would he's a sort of the sort of dude who would be. You guys are probably on different ends of the spectrum politically, but like he's a sort of dude that would like be into what you're talking about. Not no, not really. No. No. I, no, I don't think so. No. He, he he didn't give me that impression then, you know, and and I don't see, you know, it, it's hard to miss him, and, and you know, as far as what he's doing here, and uh, he doesn't talk about he doesn't talk about that kind of stuff at all. So, um, um, and and I, so all all of this is a, is really a backdrop as to as to explain what my father did because as, as a matter of fact. That unidentified flying objects are the one subject he refused to broach with me. I see. He was, so he, when I brought it up to him, you know, he told me never, never to speak about that again to him. Oh, oh wow, okay. So, and so, do you, do you think that you were targeted or like singled out for UFO experiences because of your father? Yeah, I think so. I think he actually gave me up. I, I, I honestly believe that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. This is yeah. uh, uh, there, there, are, there are other. I've gone to some groups, and some other people have had similar experiences with parents who were in similar situations. And it is widely held that 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 parents can do that. It, it's kind of, uh, geez, I, I hate to say this, I, I almost, but being a black family, um, uh, I, I think he did that because he thought I could deal with it. Uh, my sister didn't go through anything like that at all. Never, ever, ever. Um, right. But I did. And, uh, you know, we went, um, you know, I, I don't know what he was doing in the government before we got to Washington, D.C., but I'll tell you that after we came back from California, we were very wealthy. So You were very what? I'm sorry. Wealthy. Very wealthy. Okay. Yeah. So your father. We, so... we, went, we went from well off to wealthy. If that makes sense. So, I, okay. So, um, I, I want to ask one more question about about this, and then I want to move on to something else. Um, so, your father, you know, you said that his heart explodes under very fishy and mysterious circumstances, right? Um, so, do you think that like your father maybe betrayed, or did he did he sort of like at one point just not do the bidding of his overlords or what, like, what do you think uh, happened? I think, I think he was starting, he was starting to crack. He was starting to talk with me about certain things. And, oh, uh, okay. And I, I think that, I think that they stopped that. Um, and, and you have to understand that all those people are expendable, no matter what their color is. Right. Okay. But you mean all, all the CIA operatives who are doing uh, this? Whatever, whatever agency they may work for, you know, in whatever capacity, they're they're expendable. Yes. So, in your opinion, uh, actually, I'm going to ask this question at the end of the interview, um, just because I want to get to some other questions. I was going to ask you about the NSA, but I want to save that later. Um, um, so, okay. So, I, I just want to kind of get back to. Uh, Bring us back here to planet Earth. Um, so you're in school. Uh, you know you experienced racism, racism firsthand at your private school that you're at, um, and you made a you made a great point about the most virulent racist being a Venezuelan because I'm sort of similar like you. I went to private school in high school, and it was a very privileged sort of like the sort of school that like you would think of as white. Like if you drove by that school or you heard the reputation, you would assume that it was only white kids, right? 
Right. But uh, we had, and it was predominantly white, but we had, you know, a few black kids and we had a few, like, um, you know, a few Asians. But, like, um, I remember, like, we had um, a very uh, a Hispanic population. And a lot of them were cool. Like, they were proud of being Hispanic. They didn't hide it. But a lot of, like, the Hispanic kids did their damnedest to pass as white. Yep. And sort of and sort of like identify and pass into like that realm of whiteness and identify with whiteness. Even like, like George Zimmerman, eh? I was, yeah, I, I was just going to um I was just gonna say that because a lot of people have um you know, with this Trayvon Martin situation, a lot of folks have have said like, Oh, well it couldn't have been racial. It's not a hate crime. You're you're because George Zimmerman's half Latino and it's like what yep. I tried to explain to people is well, this guy, he lives he is trying to he doesn't identify as half Latino. He is so able he to there, there's a telltale there's a tell that he has, okay, and his brother does it too. And like you can tell that they identify as white because they identify themselves as part Hispanic. Okay. And as, then when then when pressed, they talk about their Peruvian mother. Uh, exactly, the guys from yeah. Venezuela are proud to be Venezuelan, okay. People from various countries, they're proud to be, it's not Hispanic, like general Mexican, whatever. You know, no, 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 no. They're Peruvian. He's half Peruvian. And people right. who are proud of that identify with that. Okay? Of course, yeah. Because that, that's, a different, that's different than half generally Hispanic, okay? Right. And, and there, there's a uh, nationalism that goes along with it, a pride, a certain amount of pride that goes with the, the country you're from. And so they he would they would both have identified themselves as half Peruvian and half white, not half Hispanic and half right. white. And so that told me immediately how he actually identifies himself, which is as white. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. That and that's that's sort of like that is the culture and the sort of like um, realm of of race that he identifies with, and that he. Um, has passed into and he, and people because he serves a purpose in that community, <laughs> you know, uh, as we can see from that that neighbor of his, um, you know, it, he's able to pass actually, and he's able to be accepted as that, and so that's sure. why it is it is a it is still a hate crime. Yes, it is. And so, because um, that's that's such a fascinating thing, and I want to get to this. Um, we're going to go more into your journey, and we're going to come back to this talking point. Actually, well, uh, Hispanic, just just for a couple things for the record. Actually, I, I don't necessarily believe that there are little green men. I, I actually believe that all of that is part of something that the government does. I, I do know pretty much for a fact that their technology is way ahead of what we know publicly, to the point where it might some of it might seem like magic to us if we saw it. And okay. so I, I, I honestly think that 99% of it, maybe there's 1% or 5% say that's unexplained, but the rest is done by the government, I'm sure, in some form or some fashion that it's them. And not some uh, creatures from Centauri or something, you know. <laughs> So uh, right. and then and then the second thing um, I, I wanted to say uh, yeah 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 uh, we were talking oh Hispanic culture um, generally Hispanic culture is the only culture on this planet that I know that's more socially conservative than say uh, average average Caucasian Western culture. Uh, even towards evangelical Christian culture, they're they're more conservative than that, and they're more misogynist, more sexist, 
you know, um, it's it's well, crazy. It, it's crazy. I mean, I, I lived in a barrio in in California, at yeah. my choice, okay, and was imbued with that that with their culture, okay, and people from South America, Central America, Mexico, all over the place. Um, I I knew many people from Spain. Um, they were the, like the Spanish people from Spain, the Spaniards were liberal um, socially. But 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 socioculturally, they were very 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 conservative. I spent 15 months in Benin's over a three-year period on an archaeological project, okay. and the people there were you know I met very cool people, people who would be friends if I went down there today, and I haven't seen them in years. But socially, they were so conservative, incredibly conservative. Right, um, and, and so it you know. Their stances on religion, abortion, with um, patriarchal societies. Societies are all very patriarchal. Uh, well, you could say that. I mean, you could say that about a lot of Asian cultures too. To be perfectly honest, I mean, it's what you're describing applies. Yeah, I mean, so I, I mean, I just I, I want to like sort of point out the danger of of saying that they're the most, you know, conservative you know group of people. I mean, you could say that about a lot of people, including Asian groups, Asian groups, Asian cultures. There's, there's a there's a difference. Um, I, I would say that the the, the Asian cultures that I am familiar with, Japanese culture, um, uh, geez, I don't even know what Hong Kong. I guess that's Chinese actually, partially Chinese. It is. Yeah, they, have, yeah. they, have, they have so much of a British influence. It's, it makes them uh, kind of mixed up in a lot of ways. Um, but Japanese culture, I, I think it's, I think it's kind of dangerous. Sexually, it's really uptight, <laughs> and, and and uh, it's familiar. Uh, it's 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 a different type of conservative. It's not Western, I, and and I get most specific. I specifically said Western culture. Okay, so oh, that's and, right. Yeah, you did. You know, I, I'm not going to get into Eastern cultures in general because I don't know all of that. You know, I don't know people from every Malaysia and blah blah blah. You know. Okay. However, I do know people from every Western culture that we can met, you know, around the world. And, you know, from, from what I have seen and what I know and from what I've studied, uh, Hispanic culture generally is, is the most conservative of all Western cultures. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, cool. Um yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm questioning you on this. It's just that I, I kind of my hairs raise a little bit when it's like we're talking about a whole culture. But I mean, I mean, obviously, like you're allowing that. Like there are people who aren't like that within these cultures too. Oh, of course. Well, I mean, I'm not saying everyone is. You can't blanket everybody in any culture, but okay. Um, you know. Um, All right. Um, so, also, just jumping back. So, we're. I'm just going to jump back to. Um. um so you're at this black. You're the managing ad editor of a black newspaper in Alexandria, Virginia. So what what comes what comes next for you in your career? Uh, I was a tennis coach. You were a tennis coach, okay. And were, were you a tennis coach while you were um, while you were uh, working at this newspaper? No, was, I quit to do that for a friend who shattered his wrist. Okay. And I tournament in Jamaica, so um, I helped because he couldn't play and couldn't coach, um, I 
went and coached his kids by day, and by night I played music. What kind of music did you play? Uh, blues at the time. Um, I guested in a lot of for a lot of bands and different genres of music, but I was playing in a in a blues band. I'm a guitarist. Okay. Um, so, okay, so your your split from this newspaper was an amicable split, right? It wasn't like any sort of bad thing. You just left because you were you wanted to go into yeah. this other direction. Okay, yeah. excellent. Okay, so then you know, so you're playing music. You're in Jamaica, right? And you're coaching tennis. No, 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 no. I wasn't. My friend had severed his wrist at a tournament in Jamaica. Oh, okay. He, he okay. was based out. He was based out west, so um, I moved all the way across the United States. And where did you move to? Uh, San Francisco. Okay, San Francisco, beautiful city. Um, so you're in San Francisco. So then, what? What? Uh, how do you get back into sports writing? Um, geez, uh, I was I came down to Texas originally to go to graduate school. I had never taken a train before. Um, any long- you never taken a what? I'm sorry. Train. Long okay. distance. And I took a train. It took two and a half days. Um, when I got to the department that I was going to go to grad excuse me, go to grad school in, my mentor had died of a heart attack. And uh I was obviously kind of left in the lurch and uh took a job down here with the Texas Historic Commission on an archaeological project. Okay. Um, met a person, a woman down here, uh, fell in love. Uh, after that project, had looked for another job in archaeology. Uh, we had a choice between Victoria, B.C. or Vermont. So we went to Vermont. And I worked there for an archaeological consulting firm. Kind of got tired of it, but field is rather, I don't know, to me it's kind of, I don't know, a lot of, a lot of gossip and stuff. This is kind of juvenile almost to me. And so um, uh, I had written some comments to a guy who had a well-known basketball blog. And he was, thinking about, he was thinking about diversifying into other sports and had some offers, some companies for big advertisements and big money. So he said, you know, uh, why don't you start a blog just so I can have some examples of your writing beyond TV? And so I started this blog. Uh, then dropped out of sight and resurfaced at ESPN. <laughs> ESPN oh wow! Apparently, yeah, they keep, well, once they come calling with money, people usually stop what they're doing. And sure. that, he was one. He was like that too. I didn't know at the time. I didn't know their sphere of influence was as big as it is. But uh, by that time, my blog had all of a sudden gotten really well known. And uh, then this guy called me up and asked me if I wanted to start a blog with some other black writers. Okay. And uh, the other writers didn't pan out, but um, I started writing on another blog, and then we won, like, the Black Red Logs Award for sports, and we'd only been up for, like, three months. And pretty soon ESPN came calling to me too, and uh, appeared like they were offering me a job. Um, it was interesting because I was already in contact with people at ESPN writers who okay. I had uh, had read my work and were interested, allegedly, in what I was doing. Right. And um, 
uh, to the ESPN thing mysteriously fell through. It was, it was the, the, the editor of ESPN.com. He was a black man, but uh, he did a 180-degree turn on me in less than 24 hours. It was, it was odd, uh, to say the least. And um, uh, then things started to get really out of hand uh, as far as myself and the person that I was uh, co-owning this website with. We were both getting offers left and right, and all of a sudden the offers would fall through. We were getting calls to go to conferences and speak, and all of a sudden those would fall through. Um, and there uh-huh. were a couple of there were a couple of constants, and that it was two writers who we were in contact with a lot, and it seemed like uh, they would talk with them about one thing and me about the same subject matter, but in a different way, and. and uh, we we later realized that they were typical Quintel for like uh, uh, machinations. You know, so like they, wait, wait 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 back up for a second. Okay, so what what year is this happening? Uh, this is two thousand eight, two thousand six, seven, seven, eight, nine. Okay, and so is your partner also black? Yes. And so, okay, so, okay, sorry, go back. So now you're you're realizing these are these are two COINTELPRO agents. Well, they, uh, the the what they were doing was like COINTELPRO, where like they did with the Panthers, uh, the Black Panther Party for Self Defense. That is, um, you know, they would tell one person one thing and another person another thing on uh, in another city, and all of a sudden somebody would say something and they would say, "No, you're lying," because I heard this, that, the other. Go, no, 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 and they'd be arguing. And there would be splits, and the, you know, schisms would start to happen in the Black Panther Party. That's what happened to myself and the guy that I was running the fight with. I mean, we were, you know, we had never met, but we talked every single day on the phone, literally every day. Okay? Yeah. And our writing was hailed everywhere. Every sports blog knew of us, talked with us, you know, dealt with us, loved us, some hated us, you know, whatever. But we were really well known, and we we were the only people. He did a lot of he mostly did interviews with uh, sports figures and and people writers and stuff like that in the rest sports related people. And I did most of the actual column writing and stuff like that. Right. And uh, I wrote some things that were probably dangerous. <laughs> when I look back on them, I did an expose of ESPN. Uh, going back to their Disney roots. And to their what? To their what roots? Disney. They're owned by Disney. Um, they are part of a a, a merger with uh, ABC and a place, an entity called Cap Cities, which was run by William Casey, uh, who was the head of the CIA at one point in time. And... Uh, what was his name again? I'm so sorry, man. Uh, we're missing some of this stuff. So what was what was his name again? William Casey. William Casey? Okay. And um, uh, ABC is CIA territory. I mean, it's known. Uh, you can probably Google that and find it in 30 seconds. Uh, ESPN is not, not mentioned as much as as that, but... If you look at how they portray sports and 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 uh, their their the way they do race and portray race in in sports, you can tell that there's there's a consistency to it and there's something odd about it. 
um, in that consistency. Um, they're very militaristic um, at the same pro-military at the same time. Um, and uh, uh, ABC and ESPN are, I'm sorry, the, the merger was done with Disney because Disney bought ESPN. There you go. Okay, yeah. Walt, Walt Disney in World War II uh, was, was commissioned to make 200 insignias for the U.S. Army. Uh, right. Um, at the same time, Walt Disney made 200 insignias for the Nazis. Right. Okay. That, that, that information you cannot no longer find on the Internet at all. It has been scrubbed literally from the Internet. Oh really? So yeah. where did you find it? Where did you find that? Uh, well, I found it on the internet. <laughs> I wrote about it before it got scrubbed. Fortunately, um, you know, and, and you know, and being a, being a blogger, you know, you have to be very careful to source everything and stuff like that. You know, or people try to jump down your throat and, and say, "Oh, you're not a journalist, you're a blogger." So, you know, I was very careful with my, you know, linking people to websites and stuff like that and sources of information. Um, and and at the time it was up, and then maybe a year later it was gone, and no longer exists. Um, so so I have a question. So so just regarding like these two guys who are coming to talk to you, um, they're not real members of the Black Panther Party. You're saying? No 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 no. I no no no. I said the, the machinations of the people who were dealing with the person who was co-authoring the website with me. The way uh-huh. they they talked with him, they say one thing to him, told him something totally different to me, and then we be at each other's strokes was very similar to what the FBI did to the Black Panther Party. And, okay, and, I'm and sorry. Everybody. Black Panther Party, they did it to the SDS, the Weatherman, everybody. Okay. Okay. So I just, but, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry that um, I'm, I'm, yeah, we're just sort of missing a lot of words right now over the phone. So that's why I'm asked, That's why I'm having you repeat yourself. I apologize, dude. No, it's to... okay. I, I'm um, from to have a really bad connection. To be honest with you, um, that person I'm talking about. When we talk on the phone, our phone calls will get dropped like literally like a half dozen times in a conversation. So I don't know what the hell is going on, but I assume something's going. So okay, cool, man. Okay, so good. So uh, you're approached. Um, by these tactics, um, by these guys trying to like get you guys out of each other's throat, and then so what's the breaking point at this point? So, you you're mentioning that um, so you were making these connections that you just now told me about ESPN, Disney, ABC, the CIA. You were making these connections in the articles you were writing, correct? Yes. Okay. And so so what so how does this venture end? Uh, it ven- it ended with us at our, at each other's throats, and and uh, one of the people responsible. Um, for that was Bill Roden, who is at the New York Times, and right. that's the same same guy who I wrote to you about in the email, who turned me on to this great friend of his, who's a person who was the agent for who's put forty million dollars slave, and yeah. um, and that, as I told you, went straight downhill after seeming like it was going to be published and. Grand fashion, allegedly. Um, yeah. That's okay, so, uh, control. so to back up really quickly, Bill Roden is a New York Times sports columnist. Um, and um, um, I, don't, I don't know much about sports columnists, to be perfectly honest. Is he, is he uh, African-American or is he white? No, he's black. He's black? Okay. Um, and is he still a columnist at the New York Times? Yeah, he is. 
Okay. So he, what was, how did you guys get to know each other? Uh, I don't know whether I emailed him. He emailed me. I have, I don't honestly don't remember quite how we first started communicating. Okay, but he recognized uh, you as a writer, pretty much, right? Like he, he yeah, he's, some... been writing for, he's been writing forever. Uh, no, but like I mean, you, like he recognized your writing, um, yeah, and sure. okay, yeah. Mut- mutual respect for each other. Okay, so um, I just want to pause real quick. Um, there are some people in here complaining about me not explaining what the premise of this is. Um, my guest tonight is D.K. Wilson. He is a sports writer. Um, and he specifically writes about – he's written in the past. He used to be a sports writer, um, and he's written in the past about racism and race and sports and sports media as well. Um, and um, I will post uh, your links and all that stuff a little bit later. Um, so that is what's happening. We are talking about uh, his journey as a writer. And now we're kind of getting to the point where um, you know Bill wrote in this, this New York Times you – know, big-time New York Times sports columnist gets you in touch – with a black literary agent uh, who's known, um, if, 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 I'm, if I'm not mistaken, she's a black female literary agent who is known to be like, you know, a high-powered um, black female literary agent who is really like a, a, a great champion of black authors and black causes at the point that you're meeting her, correct? Yes. Okay, and we don't need to know her name or anything like that. that. That's not the point. So, okay, so you get to this point. You you have been writing this uh, column, and so th- did this column start to materialize into a book, or did you write this book separately from your column? Um, I, I guess the next is it, it, I didn't write a column. I, I wrote I wrote uh, commentary. I wrote investigative articles. Okay. Um, I wrote right. game articles. I wrote all kinds of stuff, actually. I mean, I mean, I, you know, um, I, I, I was, uh, I was a defender of Barry Bonds. Um, I do not believe Michael Vick fought a dog ever. Okay. okay. Why do you, Why do you believe that? Uh, because all the evidence points to him not doing that. As a matter of fact, the Commonwealth Attorney, that's the District Attorney. Uh, uh-huh. In Virginia, actually said that there was no evidence that he fought dogs and had and said he wasn't going to be indicted. Um, that came out on ESPN. Uh, Arthur Blank and his wife immediately went on a nine-day uh, went on a vacation to Africa. So if there was any hint that Michael Vick was guilty, there is no way Arthur Blank would have left Atlanta. Okay, not only did he leave Atlanta, he left and went to Africa. Right, okay. And I watched on television, uh, I forgot the woman's name, uh, from ESPN, breathlessly report about the agents on the site and looking, and they're leaving with boxes. Well, all the boxes were empty. Yeah. You know, and nine days later, suddenly, suddenly nine days later, they go to a remote part of the land and allegedly dig up some bones. Okay. Now okay. they they said uh, they remember they found blood in in this uh, building that was built that had a rug on it, uh-huh. blood stains on the rug, and some small splatters of blood on the wall. And there's this machine, right. and they said it looked like an obstetrician OBGYN's uh, chair. Okay. Now I did some research and found out that 
pit bulls are so valuable that they literally put the mothers in uh, basically an OBGYN chair and put their legs apart and birth the children, the children, the puppies by hand. Okay. They keep the, the, the windows were blacked out. They said this was the dog side of the room. Okay. The windows right. were blacked out. They were blacked out as I did some research and talked with the woman who was the, the head of the Western States Association of Pit Bulls. Okay. She was a breeder and was the head of, and she was in Wyoming, white woman, not black, white woman. And, she, you know, she um, had read some of my stuff and emailed me and said, why, well, you know, do you have, where did you find this information, blah, blah, blah. I told her, and I said, there's some I don't have. I need to talk with you. Well, she told me that, that they keep the puppies in darkened rooms after their birth with their mothers so that they don't bark, which, because if they did, it would rile up the, the males in the pen. Uh-huh. Right, and as soon as they come out, as soon as they come out, the males will do their best to try to kill the puppies. Okay, so they're, they're killing all competition for mating. So, so the puppy, so, keep the puppy there until they're until they're old enough to go out in the pen. When the when the a district attorney, the Commonwealth attorney, came to the site, he said there was no evidence that any dog had shown signs of dog biting. There was one physically handicapped dog, but that's it. That's it. There's so, no, you know, that's so what, purely what, racist. Purely racist. Okay. So, going after Michael Vick specifically, like, what's the end game in that? Like, him of all people. Uh, he was, he beat, he beat the Green Bay Packers in Green Bay. Okay. Okay. That was the first time that it ever happened in a playoff game. Okay. Right. Here's this guy that thinks, oh, all he can do is run, and it's not, no, no, no. He beat Brett Farr in, in Green Bay. Okay. Uh, Michael Vick was the burgeoning, he was the, the man on the crest of a new era of football. And that's right. a black quarterback. Okay. When Michael Vick, I don't know if you remember that he was stopped at an airport and he had a water bottle and they said he had a secret compartment with marijuana in Okay. Right. Uh, uh, marijuana crumbs or something. You know, do you know what happened? It turned out that he had jewelry. He kept his jewelry in it and carried it with him. Because right. any time anytime it was in his legacy, it would get stolen. Okay? Anytime. Okay. So he put it in, he put the stuff that he would wear, he didn't want to wear it on him on the plane. So he would put it in this compartment in the water bottle. Interestingly okay. enough, interestingly enough, the water bottle disappeared. So did the marijuana, and so did the case. As soon as it was mentioned that it was his jewelry, okay? Right. But he he was set up then. That was a lie. They were going to charge this man with RICO charges for dog fighting. RICO, that stuff that they do for the mob. Yeah, of course. Okay. So, um, and 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 your and your your theory is that um, is it is because um, he was a black man who won against Green Bay, who beat the Green Bay Packers. Well, yes, his achievements on the football field were too much for the establishment. Okay. Okay. They, they did not like him. They did not want to see more of him. They still don't want to see more of him. As a matter of fact, you can see that with Johnny Manziel. And this whole rigmarole about maybe he took money for signing autographs. A man was on television, on outside the lines on ESPN, and threatened to expose the three biggest named black quarterbacks in college football today if the investigation goes further with Johnny Manziel. Now, why would he single them out? Okay. So, 
<laughs> what, what, you know, oh, I, I can, I might be able to prove that, hey, you took money to you, might be able to win. Not that he could, you know, not that he could, but that, that basically we'll start an investigation on them too. Right. Okay. You know, um, I wrote an article about black quarterbacks before Tim Tebow came on the scene. And I basically predicted Tim Tebow would come. Because you, I you what you what you say about Tim Tebow? I'm sorry. Predicted Tim Tebow would come, that there would be a guy like him on the horizon. Sure. A guy who could run and he could throw, like the black quarterbacks that they that are out there, and that they would use him to evolve white quarterbacks to do what black quarterbacks do, so that there wouldn't be so many black quarterbacks going to the NFL. Okay. Okay, and you see out, you see a lot of quarterbacks, the young guys coming out now, and they run. Right. They can all, they can all do it. That's not an accident. You know, and okay. that's from Alex Smith, Colin Kaepernick, uh, uh, I'm just trying to think, uh, Andrew Luck, all those guys, man. All those guys are mobile. No accident. You know? Hello? Michael Vick. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, see, there you go. That's one of those weird whatever. So. <laughs> That's all right, um, man. That's okay. Michael Vick was the first, you know, and he was hated. He still is hated, you know. So Cam Newton is hated, you know. Is it because the quarterback is – he? they have a significant amount of power within the football structure? Yeah, they're the face of the fan- franchise. Okay. Okay, you can't – <laughs> Most white people do not want the face of the fan- franchise to be a black man. Owners know this. They know it. They know it. I mean, that's the person that they're using to sell their franchise. And who who buys the tickets? Right. Okay. I see what you're saying. You know, okay. Who's so who's advertising? You know? Okay. Okay. So uh, I want to get back a little bit, just to just to kind of pull us back here. Um, so you um, you you submit a book manuscript. So how did this book materialize? Uh, through my writing and, and stuff that I had watched and thought about and jotted okay. down on the way. Okay. So and and so you submit to a black female literary agent who's known to and she's a she's known to endorse black authors. Uh, black causes. She is the one no, no, who sort of. Black, I didn't say black causes. I, I don't think I black authors for sure. Black causes. I, it, it depends on what what that cause is. I, I, it's hard to say. Uh, a black cause that might do damage to the status quo. No, she wouldn't. Obviously, wouldn't do that. Okay. So, um, sorry. I, I I thought that's what you said in the. Um, but, in no, the... It, it may have been, and I may not have been clear enough. So that's, that's okay. Okay. Um so um that's fine. Okay, so and she's you know, she's the same person who um or I guess his publishing house is the same publishing house that produced Bill Roden's book called Forty Million Dollar Slaves. Well, I, I, I don't know. She said it was on the desk of four the four biggest publishing houses. That's what she said. Okay. All all the people came back to her and said this book has been written before. When she asked what book, because there was none that she could find out there, that was quote out there, they all said forty million dollars slaves. Right. Which was interesting because it's it's about uh, young black basketball players making all this money. Right. Gets 
yet still being in a uh, owner master slave position with their franchises, etc. Uh, that has nothing to do with racism in sports media. Okay. So, um, and what was your book about, and how is it different from this other book? Well, it was about racism as it is about race as it is portrayed in the sports media. That's not the same. And so, yeah, so you're not you're not looking at it from the business perspective like forty million dollars slaves was. You were like actually no, like what? No, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Of course, there's a business aspect to it. There is, okay. there is, but like yours, so, yours so, was primarily. So he's talking about the relationship between athletes and owners. Exactly. Okay, I'm talking about between sports, race, how it is projected to the audience how the athletes yeah. are treated racially, not, not necessarily through money, but basically media through verbiage. That, that's, yeah, that's what I was getting at, was that, you know, it was literally you, you were exploring um, how an audience receives sports and how race within sports media is presented to an audience on the, on the product side, basically, like on the, yeah. On the side of like you know, as, as a as a sports fan, like basically like how the sports fans receive messages. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. Good. And so now, you, so you have this book, and you explain to them, you know, hey, my book is not the same as this. Um, and the black literary black female literally literary agent understands this, right? Yeah, she said, "I know, I know." She agreed with me. She couldn't understand. You know, allegedly couldn't understand. Okay, so then, um, so so, what happens next? Uh, we suddenly lose touch with each other. Like I write her callers. There's no answer, no responses to emails, no replies, no answer, no calling me back on the telephone, anything like that. Um, like I said to you in the email, I got with your got in touch with her by accident. It seems it seems like she was on another line and perhaps didn't know who it was who was calling, and took the call and it was me. And she said, I, I asked her why she hadn't talked to me. She said, I'm on the other line right now. I said, well, could you please make some time for me and talk with me? Could, is it possible? Is your phone call so important that you cannot talk with me? And uh, right. she said, I don't have time for this. And hung the phone up, and that's the last time I talked with her. Okay. And so, and so uh, just for our audience, either presently or in the future listening to the podcast, what happened? Why, why did she all of a sudden turn from being like this big supporter of you to becoming very cold to you? I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, you know, I, I can't make, I don't have any concrete conclusions. She just, you know, I never talked with her. You know, like the next time I saw her on the internet, she was in the company of some well-known white women who were big people in the industry. And I found that very odd. She was sitting in this group of six women all of them in the same colored black dresses. It's weird. It's like a funeral-looking scene, but not. Yeah. <laughs> and they're all so, in, in very uh, uptight, very certain poses. Let's put it like that, certain poses. And those poses are, are generally aligned with the female side of, uh, the, of Freemasonry, actually. And that's not so about the, conjecturing. That's the truth. What would you say? That they're aligned with what? I'm sorry. That the last part got muddled. The, the female side of Freemasonry. The female side of Freemasonry. Okay. Yeah. And um, so you know maybe she got into something that some women were part of 
kind of that kind of thing, and you know, off she went, man. So, uh, well, in your email, you you sort of mentioned something that was very interesting that um, that somebody had gotten to her. Um, you know, I, I think I said I don't know if someone got to her. I mean, or what? You know. But uh, you did <laughs> men- you did mention that um, you know somebody at ESPN started kind of like deciding that no. you were dangerous. Yeah. No. That's not, yes. I, hold on. I, I'll actually read it to you. Um, let's see. Or, or is this is this going? Am I am I jumping back in time when I say yeah, ESPN? I, I, said, I, I have no idea what happened, but it seemed either someone quote got to her, or this was part of an overreaching plan. Okay. Either is possible, since I was told by a very reputable media slash columnist source that someone at ESPN decided I was dangerous. And I was dangerous. I'm sorry, I left out a word. Dangerous enough is what it should be to assign two okay. of the company's writers to watch me. Okay, so so it was known that I was quote dangerous. You know, so did someone get to her? I don't know. I don't know. But you're you're so in this particular paragraph that you sent me, um, it was already you were already considered dangerous enough, correct? Before you even dealt with her. Yes, absolutely. Okay, that makes more sense. Okay, so and you know, you know who the writers are. Um, and but I, I, can I just read this next sentence here? It says I know who the writers are who were assigned to you. And after many conversations with someone inside ESPN, feel confident that I know with whom the order originated. Yes. So was this was this order? And don't give me any names. You don't have to, you know, implicate I'm not, yourself. I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that. Okay. And so, do you know? So this order originating was this like from somebody high up in the ESPN chain or higher up than ESPN? No, higher up in the ESPN chain. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, so okay, so so that's happening, and um, um, so you know your book is basically shelved. And um, when you say uh, she's in the presence of these white female, like kind of Freemasonry uh, types, do you think or do you know, like, do these Freemasonry types are they basically sort of like supporting and um, are they supporting and sort of like facilitating the uh, dominant mainstream white male culture that we live under right now? Is that what they're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Of course they are. Okay. And so um, you probably... Um, no, there are black Masons. So, okay. Okay, but, but they are not... Huh? Of the, there are black Masons, but they are not of the proper Masonic order. They are called Prince Hall Masons. Okay, it's a totally separate order from the mainstream order of Masons. Okay. All, all of so, them are white. Okay, and so the Black Masons, do they? Do the Black Masons as well kind of support this this white yes. male? <laughs> yes, okay. they do. Yes, they do. Okay, so let me let me ask you this question. I just uh, you may not know the answer to this, uh, but I just want to kind of get your opinion or your perspective on this. What makes somebody this this black female literary agent, for instance? What makes somebody like um, what, what makes somebody like this um, just switch sides all of a sudden, or like kind of go along with with like I'm gonna I'm gonna you know ditch like these young black authors and this great work I'm doing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna support the the uh, mainstream white establishment. Well, I I, I don't know that anything that she helped 
to be honest with you. Okay. Um, okay. What makes someone do anything like that? Money, uh, position, uh, security. Uh, what, you know, I mean, you name it. You name anything that anybody else would do it for, and it's the same reason, man. Okay. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, I just wanted your perspective on that. Um, and um, w- so what's the status of your book now? Is there any way that it's going to be published, like either like independently or self-published? No, I'm not. You know, I know some people have done the self-publishing thing. And it, you know, it, the, the chances of that working out are, I mean, the chances of a, of a book at a major publisher, excuse me, a major publishing house making it is not that good. They are, the chances are not that good. Self-publishing, you can multiply that by 100, okay? And to me, I, I'm not going to take the time to do that and sit and just put it out there for the hell of it. Um, my, my my views are a matter of record. Um, if anyone wants to see them in another form or in, in, a, in a totally cohesive thought-out form, then you're going to have to pay me to do that. That's all. Okay. Okay. Any, any, any other author, white author, we get paid to do that, and there are there are some white authors out there who who <laughs> who, who uh, champion black people in sports, you know, and, so, and they're getting paid, they're doing great, and they, you know, they, to be honest, you know, they they aren't even good writers, and that that's the, I'm not being a, a a snob or a hater or anything like that, but you know, I mean, they're not known as good writers. They basically talk about the same subject matter over and over, and uh, they don't really say anything. However, they appear to champion black athletes, which is good enough for for the establishment, because then they can appear on television and radio shows and talk about racism, you know, right. from, a, from a white perspective to white people, <laughs> for black people. So. Okay. Oh, okay, cool. Um, you, uh, um... The way you were holding your phone just now, um, that was the most clear that I've heard you. So do you mind just holding it that way? <laughs> Sorry. I, I, yeah, I don't understand. That was a, probably the farthest it's been away from me. I'm, I'm like six inches from it right now. Can okay, you not cool. hear me? Can you hear me? It gets, it, the, the voices get muddled. Like your voice kind of gets muddled and some of the words get muddled. That's why I've been like bothering you about repeating stuff. Yeah, it might be where I'm standing in my house or something like that. Um, okay. I can hear you fine now. Um, I'm sorry. I don't want to make a big deal about this. Um, I, no, no, it's it's important so that people can hear the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But uh, well, I, I have a question. Um, so you, um, you, you're no longer a professional sports writer. Um, I saw your link on Storify. Are mm-hmm. you still keeping? Are you still keeping that going? Uh, not really. No. Um, I, I actually have I actually have a little app that that I stash every comment, thought, and stuff like that in, um, and I might compile them and throw them up on sportsgoggles. dot wordpress. dot com. I might do that. Um, okay. I might not. I I don't know. It just depends on you know how little effort I can expend to do it, because the effort I, to to make my blog successful, to make uh, the help make the blog that I co-owned, co-began, co-founded, there you go, successful. Um, it was it was deleterious to my family, to my own health. I mean, I would stay up for sometimes three days and sleep in my office chair maybe three hours in those three days, keeping up with news, writing, 
uh, commentaries and, and and making sure that the, the site was not only up to date but ahead of ahead of the reporting from other sites and okay. like that. And the person that I wrote with was the same way. And neither of us are writing anymore. I see. He's, okay. had, he's had the same kind of go around as I've had. And, and as a matter of fact, has been pursued even uh, to a more recent date than me and dropped off the cliff, so to speak. You know, um, we were together uh, writing for an ESPN-affiliated website called The Shadow League that exists right now. The Shadow and, League, you said? Uh, yes, The Shadow League. Yes. Okay. And uh, The Shadow League was portrayed that in their mission statement, they portrayed themselves as people basically who would were, would be unafraid to talk about the things that we're talking about right now. Okay. And um, that's completely not true, <laughs> you know. Um. Uh, I, I, the, the, the editors, I, I don't know, but the person who wanted us to write, I mean, we, we are, uh, we've been writing for a long time, and the people who are above us actually are, are kind of Johnny-come-lately writers with yeah. no, edit, no editing experience, and... But we were hired to be under them to teach them how to be good editors, which that's, you know, on its on the surface or any way you turn it, it's illogical. And this is a guy who uh, was the managing editor of ESPN, the magazine. Okay. okay. And so, so I know he knows how to run a magazine, but he certainly doesn't seem to know how to run this website, which we found very interesting. When he asked me what I wanted... He said, uh, we, I was trying to find the word. And he said, you want your freedom. And I said, freedom? I said, no, man, I want autonomy, dude. You know, I want to write what I write. I know I write well. You know I write well. If they want to check my, uh, check for, for typos, fine. But don't change, don't change my, my copy. You know, I, I, you know, I'm not going to make a mistake. If I do make a mistake, then please pin it on me, please. But I, I don't think I will. And right. he, he never talked to me again. <laughs> never talked so, to me so again. So I, I have a question for you then. I mean, so, and this is kind of a broader question. So these guys, they're advertising themselves as the Shadow League, like sort of like, you know, we're going to address like some unspoken um, unspoken dirt in sports. And then right. they sort of try to prevent you from doing so. What What is that? Like, do they just get cold feet all of a sudden? Do they decide like, oh, we maybe don't want to do this work? Do they get afraid all of a sudden? What is yeah, that? I, I, I think that uh, the coming relationship with ESPN prevented them from following you on their game plan. I see. Okay. You know, but it was. I found it interesting that very early on, within the first two weeks of the uh, of the the website being up, uh, they had a guy write an article who was not part of the original list of writers. I don't even know who this guy is, really. Write an article about a pair of Adidas shoes that were very controversial that came out. Basketball shoes with shackles on them. I don't know. If wait, what? Wait, wait, wait. I'm so <laughs> sorry. I, I never. I've never heard of this. And I'm I, admittedly like I'm not a sports guy, but like. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. You just, your, your reaction was perfect. Yeah. Exactly. Just, just, just explain that one more time. I'm so sorry. The, the guy he's a famous uh, graffiti artist or something like that, and he produced. 
a pair of Adidas basketball shoes with shackles on them. Okay. Ankle bracelets, okay, that were called shackles on the shoes. And he said, well, <laughs> I mean, the, the, <laughs> the connotation to me is just amazing. I mean, you can't, I mean, it's like, okay. But uh, he had the nerve to say that the shoes were so cool, you wouldn't want anybody to steal them off your feet. <laughs> okay, so 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 this is a this is a guy not making a statement about slavery or race. Uh, he was like, that, yeah, that's what he said. But come on, man. I mean, he, that's even the, yeah, 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 yeah. So like, know, he, so like, we know that he is, and like, what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to say is like, hold on, hold on, listen to this. Even if he was somehow well intentioned, if someone brought that up to him and made him aware of that, he should have gone, oh, duh. And that would have been it. Okay, that he tried to defend himself is ridiculous. Now, that the Shadow League hired someone to come on and write and defend the position of the man who made the shoe was, to me, that's, uh, you know, right. you can't right. do that. And, and all the people who said it was racist, he told them to stop being haters. Stop being what? Haters. Oh, okay. That's, yeah. that's sort of like the common... Uh response isn't it in general like and i've read some of your stuff is it okay if i post like your uh, storify link on the chat room here sure okay uh just just to like you know just so people can look at it i'm sorry we have a lot of crazies in the chat room you've seen my chat room here before haven't you uh yeah unfortunately yes okay so um i'm just posting your in case people like we have a few normals out here too so um i'm just posting it for them uh and it is storify.com for people listening Storefy.com, you have an archive of like uh, some DK Wilson sto- social stories. It's storefy.com slash DK Wilson Island. That's all one word, DK Wilson Island. Um, okay, so I, I guess like to sort of, I, we're, you know, we're, this is, I want to I start uh, wrapping this up a little bit. Um, it sounds like to me, you know, what, what motivated you to explore racism in sports was like, Sports was like an ex- escape from this racist school that you were going to, right? And uh, no, sports- no, 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 it wasn't an escape at all, actually. Um, I okay. mean, okay. Sports, is, sports is what I did, at, you know, at, from as long as I can remember, you know. Um, it, okay. It, it, um, I, I wrote sports because I played tennis, and I saw the racism in tennis. I saw the racism in the United States Tennis Association. Um, in that, in that, they had up till, uh, gosh, the last maybe six or seven years, they had never sponsored financially a black tennis player ever, ever. Right. Even okay. even Arthur Ashe. No, he wasn't sponsored by them. No, no, no. He came from Robert Johnson was his coach. Um, as a matter of fact, okay. his grandson taught me. Okay, was my first coach teacher. Um. So, no, um, Arthur Ashe championed the USDA. Uh, Arthur Ashe, uh, never mind. I'm not even going to go there. Anyway. Um, uh, I, I, I didn't hear what you said. No, don't worry. I'm sorry. I'm not going to talk about Arthur Ashe. Um, ask why? Um, why? Because yeah. he's, he sold out, too. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, um, you know, the, I I saw in how they treated the minority program, the minority development program for players. I saw it when John McEnroe was going to buy, uh, wanted to buy Forest Hills, the old site of the U.S. Open, 
and turned it into an academy that specifically went after um, uh, minority children. And the USC refused to give him any money because they said they had no money. The following year, they had a brand new stadium at the U.S. Open at Flushing Meadows <laughs> that they spent twenty million dollars on, or more, okay. something like that. You know, so okay. you know, I, I, you know, I saw that. Um, I started. You know, I've, I've always paid attention to the news and the sports and media and how things people are portrayed in general, and the same things that were said about. Athletes in the sports illustrators my father used to have from the 60s through the 70s and 80s, they're saying in 2005, 6, 7, 7, 8, there's, you know, the white athlete's intelligence, the black athlete is uh, athletic, <laughs> you know, the same type of portrayals, you know. Uh, so, so I, I, okay, okay, uh, I, I think I get that. Like, so, so you know, you're, in, you're saying that, um, like, cause I, I think what you're saying is like very, very important. Um, and I, I wanted to bring this up. Like, you know, you have people like Jimmy, the Greek, you know, who, who just kind of like blurts out this very, very ignorant statement and he gets in trouble, right? He right. gets fired. And like, this is a, this is a situation where like, not only like our black people outraged at him, but like, even like white, you know, the white privileged folks in, Sports, like everybody in sports media, like denounces the guy, right? Right. So it kind of sounds like what you're saying is that there's the the media as an entity, and really people people if somebody says something like openly racist or bigoted, you know everybody will like you know they'll jump on it and be like, oh well that's awful. But basically the sports media and the conglomeration of all the sports media is basically sending the same messages that Jimmy the Greeks said through diff- through like more passive aggressive means i guess because like you yeah, know like yeah, what, like what often more passive aggressive means but they're more overt too i'll tell you what about what was it 3 years ago now maybe 4 years ago now mike greenberg who hosts of the the morning espn radio show the prime show in the morning it's also uh-huh. a simulcast, a television radio simulcast. Right. And he, he co-hosted with a guy named Mike Golick. Now, this show, if, if you watch ESPN and you watch them in the morning, they set the tone news-wise for the rest of the day pretty much, unless something comes up during the day. Right. On Martin, on Martin Luther King's birthday, mm-hmm. Mike, Mike Greenberg came back on air and said, it's Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. Okay, and this was not a mispronunciation. You feel like this is deliberate? Well, everybody in the country that watched it or heard it knew it, what he said. It wasn't a mispronunciation. He didn't maybe say something else. That's what he said. His excuse was, I was talking too fast. Right. Okay, he didn't get suspended. He didn't get fired. Nothing. He didn't get fined. Okay, now the next Martin Luther King birthday, as a matter of fact, I I don't know that I've seen him on the show on any Martin Luther King's birthday since. Okay. I know for sure that the next year he was on vacation. Oh, he was sick. And the next year he was on vacation <laughs> on that birthday. Okay. Right. Okay. I but see. Okay. He had black people. So he had black brothers defending him. Okay. That, that's see, see, there's a, there's a double thing happening here. There's racism 
and then there is what can only be called the, the, the results of the first modern Holocaust, which is slavery and the slave trade. Okay. And, and be somewhere between 20 and 50 million black people died, and right. perhaps more. Okay, and that's on the way here and here. Okay, that that people would to 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 quell any kind of potential thought of rebellion, a white slave owner would take a black woman, hang her by a rope, and cut her unborn child out of her stomach and let it fall to the ground as a message. And what was the first part of that? I'm sorry. If anybody, what? I said, if anyone thought. Okay, just the pretense of any kind of I'm not going to work today. Okay, oh, we aren't working right. today. Okay, right. That's what that's the response that they looked at. Okay, that that was and 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 through that kind of behavior, lynching that persists. You know, uh, you see the mass killings, really. You know, imprisonment of black people, black young men. Um, that that's. This causes psychological trauma, yeah, and, and, and it's abusive. And so often people uh, love come to love in a sick way. They're abusers, and they, they come to love their abusers. You said, yes, that's what I said. I, I'm sorry. I, I, this is so weird. The phone is like like right next to my face, and you can't hear me. This is this sucks, man. <laughs> um, it's okay. And, it's okay. We're, we're almost done. It's okay. And uh, you know, so so. So that's the those are the conditions that that set up something where a man a white man can say Martin Luther Coon King Jr. and have black people defend him. Right. Okay. Okay. So maybe that, yeah. like maybe that maybe that kind of goes back to that other question of you know your black female female literary agent and like why people of color end up kind of going in that direction of defending their oppressor. Uh, perhaps, or I, I, you know, I don't know what her deal was. I, I really don't, you know, I don't know. And I, I mean, I, I mean, in general, I mean, in general, yeah, in general, sure. I, I mean, sure. Um, you know, to, to go from dealing with black people to not dealing with black people is kind of interesting, you know, <laughs> that's, and that's another subject. Um, but so, so when you have that, when you have that kind of thing coupled with, with a press or, or with the, the systems that are in place that, that create, foment, and maintain racism, uh-huh. uh, th- then, then it's almost impossible to overcome this kind of thing. And, and that, that makes people like me who want to write about it, uh, make, it makes me not want to write about it because I don't know what good it will be, to be quite honest with you. you know, I'm, I'm tired of being a voice in the wind. I've done that, you know, right. I've done it on, you know, while I was at that black newspaper uh, for black history month, I wrote, uh, it was a weekly newspaper. I wrote a four part piece on the history of white supremacist groups in America. Yeah. I got it after the second one came out, I got a death threat and a man, okay. called, me and, a man called me and said that he had a rifle pointed at my head. And wow. I'm in a high I'm in a high rise and and I turned around and the high rise behind me is later, you know, beyond five o'clock to nine to five, it's about six thirty in the evening. I'm the only person in the office. I turn around and look at the high rise behind me and all the windows, all the blinds are drawn except for one that's cracked open. Holy okay. shit, you see a rifle there? 
Uh, I couldn't see anything. I just hit the ground, pulled the phone down, hung it up, called the police. The police come, okay? They take the report. The next day, uh, FBI agents show up. It's a hate crime, after all. Yeah. And the first question asked of me is, why are you writing such inflammatory material during Black History Month? And the FBI agents ask you that? Yes. Wow. Okay. Okay. So, so, so you you see how it goes then. You know. You know um, that's a scary story, dude. Like that's that's a very frightening story. Um, was that the only? Yeah. Was that the? Was that the? No, the I, biggest, I, was that the biggest threat? No, I was huh? followed home. I was followed home after that. Um, I stopped. I stopped driving my car to work. I took the bus in the subway. And this is yeah. in Virginia, right? Yep. Would you say? Yep. 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 Okay. Yes. Um. So, so you're tailed home. You stop driving. Um. Do you know who was behind this? No, I have no idea. I never found out. I mean, do you? Would you assume it was part of like a white white nationalist group? Oh, I, I guess you know. I, I I would guess so. You know. Okay. Okay, so, hey, you sound perfect right now, so hold the phone however you're holding it. You sound perfect right <laughs> All now. right, all right, cool. Okay. All right, so um, so you're followed home, as, and does it get worse after that? Like, does it get worse than that, or when did the threats stop? Uh, After the fourth week. Okay, after you're done with the series. Right. Everything went pretty much back to normal that I can remember. So, so when you're tailed home, I mean, what is that like? I mean... They tail uh, you back home. Yeah, they don't bother you a, in your house. I, I was chased by a truck. Can you hear me? I can hear you now, yeah. Uh, okay. I, I was chased, followed by a guy in the truck, and his, uh, what did it say? Anti-Zog, anti-Zionist occupational government. Yeah, of course, yeah. We have a lot oh. of these types on that show, yeah. Wait, wait a minute. That was his license plate. Ooh. Okay. That was yeah. license plate. Right. And <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So I'm being followed home by someone who has that on their license plate. And, you know, dipping and dodging. Fortunately I had a very quick automobile and was able to get away from him. And okay. uh decided that night not to drive my car anymore because I didn't want to get followed or and I didn't want to get in the car and have something go wrong with it, you know? Right. Okay. So for the for the next month, I did not drive my car to work until it, you know wow. I felt there anything in school. Wow. Okay. Um. That that's uh that's very frightening. Is that the only time that you you faced something like that in your career? Um. Yeah. I mean, you know, on the the. I mean, something, something that like. Something that like I'm not talking about like the the what you experienced like through ESPN, but like, um, um, yeah, just the physical threat. You mean? Yeah. Like yeah yeah that's that's the worst. You know. Okay, so I've I have a couple like I just want to wrap this up. I've kept you on the phone for a long time, and I just thank you so much for being on here, and being very generous. Um, are there um are there ways of combating racism in sports and sports media, either from fans or anybody? Um, I, I think as I look at the scene, I think it's kind of up to athletes first okay. to, to to wake up to what is going on with them and right. what they're they're asked to do, the money they make, 
um, and and to educate themselves as to what the media media members are saying to them, and and respond to them either not respond to them, uh, respond to them in kind, which could they, the media acts as a gang and will gang up on you very quickly, or stop talking to them. Okay. Okay. And and find media members that they can trust if that's possible. And there are some out there, media members. Right. And uh and white and black, not not that's not color uh specific. Right. And 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 only go to them to tell their side of the story so that they can at least get it out somewhere um where the words aren't twisted. You know, where where the perception of them isn't twisted. Um Right. I, I don't know that the fan will change the fan, the ticket right. buyer, because they're mostly white. Okay. And, you know, they want things a certain way. And they, it's, you know, George Zimmerman and all this stuff hasn't helped. It's become, that's become a, a door for people to walk through and be openly racist. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's kind of sad, but I think that's done on purpose too. <laughs> you know, um, through the at, at, you know at, at the corporate level, let me, let me just say this. At the corporate level, there are no mistakes. Okay, these these things don't happen. The the publication of George Zimmerman, the way Trayvon Martin was quickly portrayed, all of that, those are not mistakes. There's no one made a mistake. That was all done on purpose. People who who left things out, you know, um, like the first MSNBC person, Michelle Harris Perry, who's black, yeah. refuses to use the word racism on air. How how is that possible? Right. You know, that, that's not on, that's not an accident. You know, when someone told her or whether she feels some pressure or whether she doesn't want to believe it herself, whatever it is, she doesn't do it. Those kinds of things allow racists to be okay with what they're doing. It makes white, black people who are aware of her doing that afraid to say that themselves. You know? Right, uh, okay. And, and, you know, these things are purposeful, man. You know, that, that George Zimmerman was somehow made into a victim is just, yeah. and, and pe- people felt for black, again, black people felt for it. Okay, that's that's the sickening part. Because if we fall for it, that, that tells the people who are racist, hey, it's okay to be so, because look, the black person said it was okay. And and you've spoken on this earlier in the interview, like, you, you feel like when, when black people or people of color kind of fall for it and it's like a Stockholm syndrome. It's that that's like generations of conditioning of like, you know, being being taught that like you are you are dirty or that you are less a criminal. Less less than nothing. Okay. Huh? You are less than nothing. Okay. Yeah. There's 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 a quarterly um prison gosh, I I wish I could remember the name of the company. They hold a quarterly conference call that's public on their website. For people who, for companies who build private prisons, yeah, and they call a stockholder meeting, and they have people from other parts of the prison industrial complex come on and ask them questions and stuff. And the re- most recent one just came out within the last couple of weeks, and uh, you should hear them talk about their the assets, which are prisoners. Okay, they are talking about California. That there's a Supreme or California State Court, whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, about overcrowded prisons and having to let go prisons and uh, prisoners. And we're talking about like drug offenders, okay? You're talking and about what? Talking about drug offenders, basically. Right. 
and they were talking about on during this conference call that is public on the internet about how this could be a great opportunity for stockholders because the companies could build in other states quickly, build two facilities, one for about four thousand and one for about six thousand. Assets. Assets, they call they call prisoners assets. Okay. Right. <laughs> and taxpayers are paying for this. We're paying for them to do that. Yeah. And they're they're using this this thinly veiled coded with a thinly veiled racist speech and they're getting away with it. You know? And, and people need to, you know, people need to understand when, when uh, the, what, what happened with the Black Panther Party for self-defense and all this, you know, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, everybody, the whole, all those assassinations and killings, those were messages, clear messages, that we will kill you if you speak up. When, when, when Jacob Hoover said we will never allow the rise of a black messiah or someone who can coalesce the black masses to action. Who said that? <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, okay. You know, I mean, th- that's not a, you know, it's a clear message. It's a clear message. So I want to get your take on this then. Um, you know, uh, why, like, why do you think, because I've been trying to figure this out myself and trying to, like, figure this out from my, from my show here. Why, like, what motivates white people who are in a position of privilege in this country that, like, hate black people or people of color so much? Um, because they can. If, okay. if you notice, if you notice, when the economy is bad, that hate comes out more. Oh yeah. When the when the economy is good, people, white people, can be empathetic, and they often seem to be so. But right. as soon as it turns bad, do they blame themselves? No, and after all, they should because they're the mass of voters who puts these people into office. But if you notice, they're often conditioned too. Look at the Tea Party people who vote, who who urge us to vote against our interests and vote for corporations. Oh yeah, you know. <laughs> oh, and I mean, Rick Terry just signed a bill down here that was called the the anti-U.S. business bill that advocated for companies to go overseas and and build their businesses. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, people put this man in office. Are you yeah. sick? Yes, they're sick. They, you know, because because of the mechanisms that are in place for them to be and they, uh, continue to be racist. When, is, this, is, it, is it at the end of the day, like, it, it's appealing to, like, the lizard brain, to, appealing to people's fear, and that's such a powerful... Absolutely. Like, fear is a powerful drug, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. They appeal to whatever base emotion they can. So, right. um, okay. I mean, just okay. Think about it. But by the end of the trial, Trayvon Jackson was portrayed as a linebacker. <laughs> oh, yeah. A li- a linebacker. A 150-pound kid. Yeah, yeah. It's ridiculous. It was two weeks. It just turned 17 two weeks before. People were asking, how come there's no recent pictures of him? He was a 16-year-old kid, and there were recent pictures of him. You know, Miss. You remember the defense attorneys were calling him Mr. Martin. Mr. Like Mr. Martin, yeah. Yeah, they, exactly. they know they, they know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. And is, and do you feel like in, in today in 2013 it's mainly done for profit because you know keeping the classes keeping no, classes. No, no, no. It's for control. Control. Okay. If you so that people, you can do anything, including profit off of it. And and what? I'm sorry. I said, you can, if you can control people, you can do anything to them, 
including profit off of them. Right. Okay. So, um, and so what do you make, I mean, you were speaking about your father being involved in some murky, murky business in the CIA. What do you make of this NSA um, business and the Obama, and the Obama administration? What, uh, I think it's, I think it's patently ridiculous. I think it, it's what? I'm sorry? It, I think it is patently ridiculous. Okay. I think the, up, the uproar about it is ridiculous. The Why? NSA, the NSA built a structure called Echelon. In Australia, uh-huh. in the 19... 19- can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Oh, okay. The, the, wow, this, again, I, I'm not moving the phone. Don't uh, worry the about NSA, it. The NSA built a structure in Australia in the 1980s. It was called okay. Echelon. That publicly meant to gather, to, to collate all information, um, telecommunications. That was a public announcement. Okay. They publicly announced that they were building a new echelon building in Utah uh, about 18 months ago. What the fuck is the big secret? If they told you that that's what they were doing in the 80s, they told you they were building another facility now on U.S. soil in Utah 18 months ago, what the fuck is the big deal? Well, I mean, are you are you at all worried about... This no, no, I'm not, they, no, I'm not worried because they've been doing this for 35 years that we know of. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, why hasn't it been reported? Look, Glenn Greenwald and all these people, dude, come on. You know, you can't tell me Glenn Greenwald doesn't know about Echelon. But is he talking about Echelon? No, no. Right, okay. No. I mean, you, any, any dumbass can look on the internet and find it. You know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to find the history of the NSA's uh, uh, stealing our communiques. You know, <laughs> but 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 let me let me ask you something. Let me ask you something. So, uh, you know, so people, I'm sure a lot of Americans don't know about this history that you just that just outlined. And, and the, I, the, the, I don't I don't understand why because these things are publicly announced. They are we're, we're not. Yeah, yeah. No, I I totally understand that. But you know, look, we're not the most informed people in the world. But um, I, I want to ask you this. Um, so, so people are just now finding about finding out about this NSA thing because of the way the media works right now. Because internet is like making everything in real time. You you don't understand like why people like who just did not have any knowledge of Echelon and the history of it. Why they might not be given pause as to what's happening. Why they might not. Why they might not. Why they might be disturbed by the actions of the NSA because yeah, they're learning the, it for the first time. The fact that they pause and are disturbed allows the NSA to continue to have a grip on them. If, if okay. people were, if people who should be informed were informed and said right. something about it, people would not be like they are and they would have moved to do something else. Okay. Sure. Okay. Um, and, and I, I blame each individual. We have these things called laptops, PCs, desktop computers. Uh-huh. Let's search, search out the information for us in real time. Right. If, if people spent more, most of their time using the computers for what they were intended for, which is to, to gather and to spit out information instead mm-hmm. of for fucking social media and sure. blog and, you know, inane blog, Instagram, what, all this bullshit that people use, then, then we'd be okay. I don't, I have no pity on anyone who doesn't know this. I, I'm sorry. Well, okay. I'm sorry I, if it's you or anybody. It doesn't matter. 
because okay. the, information, the information is there, was there. You know, they were doing shit in real time before there was real time communication. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Um, well, D.K. Wilson, th- those are all my questions. I've kept you on for a really long time, and you've been very, very generous with your time. I just want to, I just want to thank you really quickly for being on my show. I really appreciate that. Yeah, no problem, man. I I don't know if we got to where places you really wanted to get to, but I hope we got to some places at least. Yeah, I mean, like it's gonna, it, you know, this is a. We're bringing up a lot of shit. Like we're we're talking about yeah. a lot of different things. You know what I mean? That like it's, it would probably require a few different visits. You know what I mean? So um, that's sure. that's why. Is it okay for me to put up your Twitter handle and into the chat room? Uh, no, don't do that, man. Because I, I you know, I don't want to have to go around blocking assholes. Okay, I get tired of that. Okay, cool. Okay, cool. So then I will leave off uh, your your stuff there. Um, did there is somebody on the phone? Did you want to take a phone call or? or oh no, they hung up. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. Okay, so. Um, did you want but to take I, any phone calls, or are you good to kind of like let it let let us wrap this up? Yeah, I'll let it wrap up right here. I'll tell you what, you know, have me on again next month or something, and yeah, uh, rather than do background stuff, let's you know have some specific question topics and we'll just deal with those. That sounds good. Um, because I, I'm sorry, I, you know, we did the introduction thing, and there's a lot to be in the background that, that kind of tells why I do what I do, you know? Yeah, and I mean, like, I I, um, I, I wanted to get to you, like, because part of the show, part of the show, The Hate Project, is kind of, you know, getting into people's life stories a little bit of, like, you know, what brought you to your work that you do now, you know what I mean? So that's why I ask a lot of those questions. Sure. Um, so that's that's all. Um, but, um, yeah, did you want to, did you want to say anything else or cover, uh, address anything else that, that I didn't cover with you? Well, I, I, you know, it, there's this one overreaching message, you know, people need to use these things, these powerful things that we have for their intended use, man, and stop bullshitting ourselves and each other and, and wasting our time, um, you know, uh, doing inane social things that, that, you know, instead of going out and meeting people, we're meeting people on the Internet. Sure, you know, okay. And, you know, and stuff like that. Use the Internet for for research, man. You know, use it to re- ask your own questions and find the answers to them. Don't let somebody else ask you or tell you the questions. Ask okay. your own questions. You know, use the thing for research, man. <laughs> that's, that's, I guess, my last thought. Okay, excellent. Well, sir, thank you again for calling in and talking with me tonight. It was a great call. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate All right. it. Have a great Bye. evening. Yeah, good night. Bye. And it's me again, Roy Koshy. I've been watching you listen to this episode the entire time. So uh, that was the interview with D.K. Wilson. Uh, Coming up, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, are some clips from when Martin Linstead, the white supremacist nutcase Christian identity pastor, called in. Uh, I included a few clips of him ranting at me about my show. Um... And, again, he's revealing the real agenda of the right wing, of white supremacists they can't be reasoned with, and he chides me for trying to understand, basically. He chides me for trying to reason with these folks and understand hatred. So, here you go. Enjoy. I'd love to hear your feedback on this. 
I'm simply saying is that you ate you, you ate up most skanky shit and you ate this or shit. I mean, hell. I, 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 you're not even I, you're not even smart you're not even smart as Jerry you know as uh, what Jerry Springer at least Jerry Springer no. knows it's an act here you are rather gullible <laughs> really okay what the hate project does he's some sort of mamsery calls and he wants to do hate you know hate people he wants to talk about hate the fucking idiot don't know a damn thing about hate where it comes from at all. And whoever comes in, he goes, if they feed him a line of shit like Axel Skanky does, he goes ahead and eats them butt nuggets up here like it's delicious. And then Visser calls in. Hell, it'd be like Jerry Springer. But hell, Hate Project is dumber than Springer. I dig into stuff. I'm going ahead, and you have Apocalypse now, and now, you know, now the quarter eight beaner is running around pretending he's not going to look at what Kane put up in his hack. Well, hey, stick your head up your ass. Don't really matter. Point I'm trying to make is that shit is fucked up, and niggers and wiggers and Jews, oh my all going to die by the millions. It doesn't really matter what you dumbass faggots and mamsers playing Christian identity or white nationalism or anti-racist activists do about it. Okay? They're white ones. Yeah, so, well, what's your point? Well, my point is, and this is another thing about your show, you approach it as if, you approach it, you know, just in the terms that Jews and liberals and Uyghurs approach it, that hate is something that is learned. And you don't understand, you know, real right-wingism is that to us, you can't uneducate a Jew or a nigger or a beaner. You can't make him into a white man. You can go ahead and turn a white man into a Uyghur by education, but you can't turn a non-white into a white man. And you you believe that this hate comes from outer space. I don't believe it comes and, from outer space. Huh? I don't believe it comes from outer space. I never said that. No, but you I think, act it. You act it. No. You actually, you, 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 the, entire, the entire point of your program, the hate project, I, I've listened to you. I've actually listened to you. Yeah, I know. Yeah, thank you. Sort of, you. you sort of believe, you sort of believe, like all left wingers do, that education is the key to everything. You don't believe, you don't believe in nature. You believe altogether in nurture, which is a no, bullshit I, notion. You're you're putting a lot on me, but like I don't really believe that. No, um, I, I think you, I, know, you, you don't you don't you don't consider yourself edu- an educator. In your own way, you don't work in a school per se, but you don't consider yourself. Oh, no, no, you're, you're no, not no. You're not you're not trying to you're not you're not trying to educate people, really. I'm not. Well, you gotta understand is that I don't consider you or non-whites or Jews or mongrels to be people. I consider you to be Fine. well, mongrel man. Okay. Fun, huh? Well, 
thank you for listening to Paradox of Civility. Um, I have two more episodes of The Hate Project that I'm going to be getting through, and um, I'm not sure if I'm going to release episodes of this podcast addressing both of those episodes or if I'm going to combine them into one episode. I'm not sure yet. Um, But if you have any suggestions, any ideas, any feedback, any questions, any comments, please email me at paradoxofcivility at gmail.com. It's in the description below. Uh, Follow me at at Civil Podcast on Twitter. Like the Facebook page. And I will talk to you next time.